see one of our board members, Mayan, Ken, I don't know, is Sharon here today? No, no Sharon, uh, Dave, Beth, um, these people, they, they serve us so faithfully. There's such an amazing team around me, such a great support to me. So would you just encourage them today uh, just to know uh, that we appreciate them, that we see them and we care about the sacrifice that they give uh, in serving us so well. So uh, please do that uh, as I, before we jump into this. Okay, now, 2 Samuel 19. We're going to start uh, right at the second half of verse 8. If you have a brown pew Bible, it's on 229. And when you found that, would you stand with me? I want to read this passage together. We'll stand just in honor of God's Word. And then when I'm finished reading, I'll say this is God's Word. And I'll just ask you to respond with thanksgiving by saying, thanks be to God. Here we read this. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes Throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were all, all arguing with each other, saying, the king, now they're talking about David, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He's the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled the country because of Absalom. And Absalom, who we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent this message to Zadok and Abathar the priests, Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace, since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my brothers, my own flesh and blood, so why are you the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not commander of my armies in place of Joab. Mm -hmm. He won over the hearts of all the men of Judah, as though they were one man. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. And the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and go and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. And Shimei, son of Gerah, here's Shimei again. The Benjamite from Baharim hurried down with the men of Judah to meet the king David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan, where the king was. They crossed the ford to take the king's household over and do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gerah, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate, prostrate before the king and said to him, May the Lord my king not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day the Lord left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I know, I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here to be the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. And then Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. And David replied, What? Do I have in common with you, you sons of Zariah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? So the Lord said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jimmy, can I ask you to just turn down my volume a little bit? I feel like I've got a special... Or about my voice right now. There we go. Thank you. 
Let me pray for us and just commit this time in God's Word and ask Him to speak to us uh, now. Spirit of God, we just want to ask now you to come in a powerful way, uh, to meet with us as you already have this morning. Continue to minister to us now through your Word. Uh, we believe this is a living Word, an active Word that will penetrate even to the very bone and marrow. Uh, I believe you have a specific purpose for this Word, and each person that has been drawn here today to meet with us you drew for a specific purpose because you had something you wanted to accomplish in them, just as you accomplished something in me this past week through this word. I ask you now to accomplish that purpose in each one here gathered. You say that when you send out your word, it doesn't return void to you. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us. And as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. It probably won't come as a great surprise to anyone here that knows me very well that through the course of my life, I have said a lot of really, really dumb things, which later I have regretted having said. More, more often than I probably would like to admit to you this morning. Um, many times that's come as a result, I think, just of an overly quick wit. I just, you know, like to make jokey comments, don't really think through the ramifications of having said that. I think a lot of times it's a belief that what I think is funny, other people are going to think is funny. And I've realized more often, i got a weird sense of humor. A lot of people do not think the things that I think are funny are funny. Other times, I've picked a certain side in, a, in an argument, usually my own, and I've just vigorously defended it, only to find out later I didn't have all the facts and I chose wrongly. And if you share either my runaway mouth syndrome or my defense attorney complex in any way, then you also know the uh, pride-swallowing, uh, deeply humbling task of having to admit you were wrong to somebody, to come to them and, and ask their forgiveness from someone you've offended. But on the other hand, you might also know uh, what it's like to be in the position where you're the one who's been offended or hurt. And now you have this person standing or kneeling or whatever it is around you, and they're coming to you, uh, uh, pleading for your forgiveness, asking, acknowledging they're wrong. Uh, I'm ashamed to say that uh, there's been times, it's not often, but it has happened, where I've been in circumstances like that, that person has come to me and been like, I know I messed up here, I'm so sorry. And I have made them sit out in the, the waiting room of my anger as I nurse my wounds and decide whether or not I think that they're worthy of my forgiveness yet. I'm sure that you've never done this, but this is my own experience. We are uh, continuing in this series, teaching series after God's own heart this morning, actually getting very near to the end of this series. Looking at the life of David as recorded for us in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And after defeating his son Absalom's rebellion, that's what we've been looking at for the last two weeks, that caused David and his whole household to have to flee, what we're looking at in our passage today is the return of the king to his throne in Jerusalem. But among uh, numerous others, one of the reasons we can instantly tell that what we're getting here is the true account of, of David's return to the throne and not the Disney version is because of just how complicated, how messy this is as it happens. Uh, uh, that's how I think we instantly know in Disney films, if those of you who have ever seen that, yeah, there's tension, there's struggle, but the minute the bad guy is defeated, 
the story's basically over, right? I mean, you just, they zoom into the couple, the royal couple back on the throne, they're all cleaned up, smiling and happy, somehow completely free of any psychological trauma, even though they've just endured numerous near-death experiences. They're all just, hey, we're great and happy, and cue Celine Dion with singing the title song and then roll the credits, and that's it. The story's over. But here, chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, we didn't even read the whole chapter. There's all kinds of, of confusion. Uh, uh, nobody knows what, what, what do we do now. Like, this is all so new. Uh, there's difficulty. There's discord uh, following and surrounding David's return, not to mention numerous places where forgiveness, uh, where restoration has to be both sought as well as offered, which is much closer, I think we'd all admit, to the kind of messy, complicated lives that we live in every day. Uh, that's much truer to our own experience, which actually makes this much more helpful for us to look at now as we consider today what forgiveness, what does forgiveness truly look like for the man or woman after God's own heart? Because here's the thing, forgiveness, if you've ever asked for it or offered it, it's messy, right? It's complicated. It's tricky. Uh, uh, it's never just as clean, straightforward, I ask you. It's never that easy. And not to mention that it becomes even more tricky when it comes to whether, whether it's the actions that we commit that require forgiveness, that we're asking for forgiveness, or decision whether or not we want to offer forgiveness. What's common to both of those things is the unspoken cost of forgiveness to our pride. There's an unspoken cost to forgiveness, to our pride. And what I mean by that is, and although we often don't think of it in these terms, for instance, on the one side, when, when forgiveness is, is being offered, it's incredibly costly to the person who's offering that forgiveness because if you think about it, you're, you're asking someone to absolve someone of their debt, to cancel out the debt that they owe you for what they've done to you. And in every one of our hearts, there's this feeling of like, you're going to get away with that scot-free for what you did to me? forgive you, like there's an incredible cost to our inner sense of, of pride and justice. But on the other side, when you are asking someone for forgiveness, there's also a cost paid to your pride there because in order to ask for forgiveness, you have to admit that you were wrong. You didn't get it right. We don't like to do that. Not to mention we have to put ourselves underneath someone else's judgment. It's just like, mm. We don't like it, and, and, and I think given both of those realities, I think that's one of the reasons why forgiveness is just so hard, it's so tricky. We, we don't see it truly offered or given very much today. But as we look at how both of these things, asking for forgiveness and offering forgiveness, are worked out in the life of David as he returns to his throne in Jerusalem, my prayer for every single one of us today as we look at this is that we might see that the cost of forgiveness however costly it may be, is absolutely worth paying. It's worth paying. And I pray that we would also see just how essential forgiveness is to keeping our hearts oriented towards God. And in order to help you see that, I want to look today at this passage in just two ways. I want to talk about seeking the forgiveness of the king and then the sacrifice of forgiveness offered. Seeking the forgiveness of the king and the sacrifice of of forgiveness offered. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them up again to that passage? 2 Samuel 19, second half of verse 8 there. Follow along with me now as we look at the essential role of forgiveness 
in the life of this man after God's own heart. Okay, so let's look first of all at seeking the forgiveness of the king. Seeking the forgiveness of the king. Now, as you read through this passage, there's all kinds of, of people who need to have distance closed in their relationship with David. They need to have their relationship restored with David, the Lord's anointed king, as he returns to the throne in Jerusalem. And I mean, if the attempted coup by David's son Absalom revealed anything, it showed, hey, there was a whole lot of pro and anti-David sentiment already present in his kingdom, even before he'd had to flee. Because it's not just simple, like, oh yeah, come back. It's a lot of like, I don't know. But of all the relationships listed, none of them was probably more in need of true forgiveness than uh, from the king, from, than this guy Shimei. Shimei, who we see uh, show up again in verse 16 of our passage. Now, if you weren't here with us two weeks ago when Nathan preached through chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, which describes what happened as David was fleeing Jerusalem. You might not understand why that's the case, but just to give you the, the Coles Notes update very quickly, just the short answer is that as David, he's fleeing for his life, Absalom's about to come in and kill him, and he's like, we got to get out of here. He grabs everything. He's fleeing for his life. Shimei, who uh, is of the tribe of, of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe in Israel, he just took it upon himself to basically be the, the unwelcome wagon for David as he left. Okay, he just, as David is going, he just decides, I'm, I need to let you know how unwelcome you are. I want you out of here. He's taking dirt and stones and throwing them at David as he goes, yelling at him, calling out all kinds of curses against him, saying, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul in whose place you have reigned. You know what? The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom, you have come to ruin because you're a man of blood. Unbelievable, devastating, awful, awful circumstances of what he's doing to David as he goes. Now, at the time, David is in such a weakened, just emotionally overwhelmed state that he actually doesn't stop him. He allows Shimei to keep following them, throwing dirt at him, calling out all these curses, rather than let Abishai go over and take off his head like he wants to do for cursing the Lord's anointed. He says, no, he, he lets him do it. He says, he says even the, the Lord has told him to do it. He's just so like in this fog of like devastation. He's like, you know what? God's told him to do it. I, I deserve this. And he's heading out. But yet he says this, though, interestingly, as he goes, he says, let's let we should let Shimei continue to curse because it may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today, which, as we see now, is evident to all. The Lord has clearly done that. He has restored David now back to his throne. And so, given all that, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that, that David is the last person Shimei would want to see now, right? Like, if anything, Shimei is probably being the one. Now he should be packing up his stuff fleeing for his life to get out of here, given what he's done to, to David. And yet, despite his obvious failing, despite understanding he's clearly worthy of death for what he'd done, we see Shimei instead in verses 18 through 20, rushing, it says, hurrying to be the very first person to meet David as he returns. It's crazy. Prostrating himself before the king, pleading for mercy with all the same passion with which he had previously cursed. 
And, and I don't know, like, as you read this, if you're like me, I'm just like, no, nah, I don't buy it. No, come on, man. Like, this, this seems totally contrived, totally manipulative. You know what? Abishai, he, I mean, Abishai, uh, uh, Shimei, he just backed the wrong horse. He picked the wrong guy, and oops, that guy didn't win. And so now he's just kind of backpedaling, trying to be, no, 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 actually, no, you're the one I, I support, David. Just forget all that other stuff. It just seems like, come on, man, really? Really? And I love how in verse 21 there, uh, Abishai is basically like, okay, so now can I kill him? Is it okay now to do it? Like, you're, you're the king now, right? This is good. Uh, he's clearly got a one-track mind of, of how he likes to deal with problems. But, but I wonder if that isn't judging Shimei too quickly. And the reason I wonder that is both because of Shimei's contrite actions as well as his repentant words. The actions you see in verses 16 through 18 here, where uh, he's hurrying down to meet David. First of all, he's, he's hurrying to him. He brings 1,000 Benjamites with him, which remember, that's Saul's tribe. He brings them along with him and in support. He crosses over the river to help bring David and his family back over. He doesn't wait on the other side like everybody else. He crosses over the river and... He, he prostrates himself, likely soaking wet from having crossed the river. He comes over just this like pretty pathetic looking thing, prostrating himself at David's feet. I think there's great intention behind those actions, which I want to explain in a minute. But then add to that Shimei's words, which we have in verses 19 through 20. Look with me there. He says, May the Lord not hold me guilty. May, may, do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. I, I think one thing to note, especially in Shimei's words there, being just his plain, repeated acknowledgement of his sin against David. He doesn't seek to just gloss over it or kind of reframe, you know, you didn't really understand what I meant when I said, like, he doesn't do anything like that. He just is like, no, I screwed up. I am, was wrong. He makes specific reference to that day. That day when you were leaving, he points right to exactly the moment when he did it. And he says, I know I've sinned. I know I was wrong. And put all together then, I believe Shimei's actions and words reveal not a opportunist, but a deeply humbled man who, who had wrongly accused David of blood guilt, at least for Saul's house, and had since come to realize what the truth was. I think, I can't imagine that moment after all of his cursing of David for blood guilt on the house of Saul when he finally learned the truth, finally learned that David, not only had he had nothing to do with Saul's death or Jonathan's death, he had actually deeply mourned their deaths. And he'd even taken in Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, uh, as a, a token of his great love for Jonathan, uh, inviting him to eat continually at his table. I can't imagine that moment when he realized how wrong he'd been. Shimei knows he's guilty. He knows he's deserving of the very death that Abishai keeps threatening, and yet still he throws himself on the, the mercy of the court, if we can call it that, in hope that the character of the king that he had wrongly accused would offer him mercy instead of justice, would offer him life instead of death. And as you look at the words and actions of Shimei in our text, I think you get a real clear sense of this cost of forgiveness that I'm talking about, don't you? 
There's a great cost he's having to pay in order to ask for this forgiveness from David. It's miles away from the, I'm sorry, okay, that we so often offer today with no contrite actions attached to them whatsoever, which, by the way, if you have to add okay to the end of something, it pretty much makes it sound not true. I love you, okay? Yeah, really? Shimei, he holds nothing back. Nothing back from from his apology. He lays himself completely vulnerably before the one that he's offended. He acknowledges his sin without excuse, without justification, and demonstrates by his actions the truth behind his words. And we'll talk about what this looks like in our relationship with God in a minute, but just before we even do that, is this what you do with other people? Is this what you do? Is this your experience of asking for forgiveness from someone else. And no, I'm not suggesting that you prostrate yourself before the bylaw officer writing you a parking ticket, you know, acknowledging your guilt and pleading for mercy. But when, when you know you've offended someone, when you know your actions have caused them hurt, is this the way you humbly seek forgiveness from them? Without excuses without justification for your actions, owning, naming specifically your sin that you committed against them without, without feeling the need to point to anyone else's sin at the same time. Well, you know, yes, I did this wrong, but, you know, actually there was this, and, you know, you did kind of make me feel like I needed to say it. None of that. Just says, this is how I offended you. I did this wrong. Nothing else. Showing by your actions the truth of your repentant words. Is this how you seek forgiveness from others? Remember, I said when we began, one of the reasons we fail to do this so often is because there's an unspoken cost to our pride every time we ask someone to forgive us, from the greatest offense to the very smallest. there's There's a cost to it involved. And yet I believe in order to truly ask for forgiveness from someone, you must be willing to surrender your pride completely you got to surrender it completely. You must be willing to lose all power and position to the one that you've offended in order to truly ask for their forgiveness. And the reason is because, listen, losing power is also exactly what we're asking the one we've offended to do when they forgive us. Which is what I want to talk with you about next as we talk about the sacrifice of Forgiveness offered. The sacrifice of forgiveness offered. Look with me back at the text here, and I think you'll clearly see this surrender of power from the one offering forgiveness as well. Uh, If you look, uh, first of all, at verse 11, you see David appealing to his own tribe of Judah. Listen, don't, don't be the very last ones. Don't be the last tribe who starts to pursue inviting me back to uh, to Jerusalem. Now, don't, don't be the last ones. Now, it's not clear exactly why the tribe of Judah particularly had distanced himself from David at this point. The Judah is, is David's family tribe in, in Israel. But at this point, I think it has, it's undoubtedly something to do with just the fact that David's passive leadership in his later years had brought all kinds of discord, all kinds of drama in the house of David, and I think had about eventually led to this coup from Absalom. And I think a little bit, you know, the tribe of Judah is just kind of like, you know, we just want to kind of step away from this a bit. So I think that's, that's certainly part of it. But although this distancing is, is surely painful, it's, it's hurtful to David. 
You read in verse 13, you see David putting his own actions behind his offered forgiveness, calling Amasa to be his commander of the army in place of Joab. Now, that might not be very significant to you initially, but it means a great deal more when you come to learn that Amasa was actually the commander of Israel's armies under Absalom. He was the commander days before leading the army to destroy David. And now, here's David. You see him surrendering a great deal of power to extend forgiveness here in order to reunite this nation. It's not going to happen if he's not willing to surrender power himself. Now, yes, where there are deeper reasons for why David would want to replace Joab with Amasa, considering Joab had completely ignored his direct order and, and killed Absalom, yeah, sure. Absolutely there were. And yet, hey, David could have easily offered the position to one of his other generals. Remember, he had Abishai, he had Itai, the other Avengers. He had these guys that were loyal to him and followed his course to, to get him back on the throne. He could have offered the position to one of them. And yet, in offering the position of the commander of his armies to a rebel commander, who happens to also be his nephew, just as Joab was, David surrenders power to the rebel tribes in order to demonstrate the extent to which his forgiveness is offered to all. By offering forgiveness to him, he's kind of saying, everyone who fought under him as well, I'm offering forgiveness to you as well. And if you look at the response to David's surrender of power in verse 14, it's clear they understand this to be David's intent, and they are more than won over by his humble act of leadership here. They're like, yes, yes, you and all your men, come back. Second place you see David surrendering power is in his response to Shimei. Verses 22 and 23. Remember, Abishai had just re-offered to carry out the just punishment for Shimei's cursing, uh, the Lord's anointed king, which David replies in verse 22. He says, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Guys, this is a celebration. This is a, a, a good day. We're not going to kill anybody today. Do I not know that I am king over Israel? Whatever he said about the fact that I'm, I'm not the rightful king, I am. I know I'm the king, and I know I'm the king today. And then he can offer this, this word of forgiveness, this word of acknowledgement to Shimei when he says to him under oath, you shall not die. It's incredible. Now to be clear, David's not at all saying that Shimei wasn't worthy of death because of what he had done. That's not what he's saying. He's simply, once again, surrendering power. He's surrendering his right as the Lord's anointed to carry out this justice on him. In both of these instances, what we see is this man after God's own heart, he's returning to the David we knew before. That, that David, I mean, we've... Do you, have you noticed this? The first messages in this series were so much happier... And lately, they've just been really depressing. This is starting to get back to some of that David we saw before, pre-Bathsheba stuff, where he's, just, he's acting in wise ways, politically savvy ways. He's, he's acting in ways that, that draw people together under his leadership as, as opposed to dividing them. But what we also see is that in acting in these ways, it's incredibly costly to David as he must sacrifice again and again, his rights, his power as the Lord's anointed king, in order to extend forgiveness to those who rebelled against him. He sees the greater goal of we need to be united as a nation, and so he's willing to sacrifice his right 
to carry out justice on those who rebelled against him. Speaking of the offer of forgiveness, one, one pastor I was reading in an article this past week described it this way, and this is a bit of a paraphrase. He says, the offer of forgiveness is central to our experience as Christians at the very heart of our relationship with God and others, while at the same time being desperately unnatural and impossibly difficult. Offering forgiveness, that's the very heart of our relationship with God and others, desperately unnatural, impossibly difficult. Think about this. When when Shimei came before David and humbled himself in repentance, he was completely at the mercy of David's power, wasn't he? David could have justly punished him for his offense. The one asking for forgiveness, again, if he's doing this rightly, surrenders all power to the one that they've offended. And honestly, just think of your own life. Ask yourself this. When the power shifts, when the tables turn, and the one who has cursed you, who has hurt you, who has injured you, who has abused you, and crushed you, inflicted pain on you, whatever, when they surrender their power to you, acknowledge the truth of their sin against you, what could be more natural than to take full advantage of that power that you now have and carry out justice upon them? That is the most natural thing to do. It's the very essence of what we know of the law of lex talionis. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I have the power now, I take the tooth that you took from me, right? And yet, what we see demonstrated here in the life of David is that the man or woman after God's own heart is to respond differently. That we respond differently. That instead of taking advantage of surrendered power, we are to respond by surrendering power in return as we offer forgiveness. Which, as I said as we began, also involves an unspoken cost. There is a cost involved to do this of the one offering forgiveness. For in forgiving the one who has hurt you, who has offended you, you are absorbing that debt. You are canceling out the debt that they owe you. And the only way that's ultimately possible is to surrender your right to justice. Surrender the right to to get that eye back that you have had taken from you. Forgiveness, to balance the scale, always involves a payment. You are making the payment for them. It is costly for you in order to offer forgiveness. And as you consider this, now as we're talking about offering forgiveness, just like I asked you with regard to asking for forgiveness, I'm asking you now, is this also how you offer forgiveness to others? Is this how you... Offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt you, who's offended you. Do you surrender power to the one humbling themselves before you, admitting they're wrong? Or do you take the shift in power from offender to offended, from abuser to abused, simply as the opportunity now to offend and abuse in return until the, you, know, you feel like the scales of justice have balanced again? The repentant offenders sit endlessly in the waiting room of your newfound power while you deliberate on their worthiness of being forgiven. Forgiveness is truly the most unnatural response to injury and offense. It's an unnatural response. And yet to fail to offer it, to 
to fail to offer that forgiveness is to fail to recognize the very same need present in every single one of us for every offense that we have committed against others and against God himself. to seek forgiveness, and to offer it. Both are acts of humility that require the surrender of power rather than the use of it in order to be effective. And yet in a room like this, I know there's got to be numerous people in here who hear a a, a statement like that, hear a a message like this and think, yeah, sure, okay. Yeah, I, I I, I definitely get what you're saying there about surrendering power to the one seeking forgiveness. That makes sense. And you know what, on paper, I see what you're saying about, you know, the one offering forgiveness, they have to surrender power as well. I think, yeah, I bet that that would work well for a lot of people. But you you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what they took from me. I already feel basically powerless before that person, and now you're telling me I'm supposed to surrender more power to them to forgive them? Are you kidding me? And if that's where you're at this morning, this part of David's story is probably more confusing and unnatural for you than anybody in here. Because you're wondering, how on earth could David even respond to someone like Shimei like this? How could he even do that? I mean, this guy, this Shimei, he came to David at the lowest, most devastated point of his life, without a thought for his circumstances, his suffering, an ounce of compassion, took full advantage of David's devastated position and used his power to pummel him at his lowest place, pummel him with abuse and blame and cursing. How could David ever surrender power to somebody like that? Especially now that he's in the position as the king. He's in the place of power. How could he not respond by using that power to bring about justice. And the only answer I know how to give you is that I believe David could respond like this to Shimei because David knew what it was like to be Shimei. David could respond like this to Shimei because he knew what it was like to be Shimei. I mean, when you read... David's words in Psalm 51 that he wrote immediately following his uh, confrontation when the prophet Nathan came to him uh, after his adultery with Bathsheba. Listen to what he says. This is what David wrote in his own confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me and against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Those those words, they sound almost identical to Shimei's words to David, don't they? As he acknowledges the reality of his sin and pleads for his sin not to be remembered. I wonder if David didn't look down at Shimei and see exactly what the prophet Nathan saw when he had confronted 
David about his sin, and David just stood helpless and exposed, knowing his actions were worthy of judgment, and just simply confessing, have mercy. I, I, I have sinned against the Lord. I think that, I think that's all that enabled David to surrender power here and offer forgiveness and grace instead of judgment to Shimei. And I think it's the same thing that can enable you to offer forgiveness to those who have hurt and offended you, whatever the offense. I'm not suggesting for a second that this is moment, like instantaneous and momentary. We just said it's complex, it's messy. But I think this is the piece that can enable you to actually surrender that power and offer forgiveness to those who've offended you. Because here's the thing, David knew exactly what it meant to seek forgiveness himself from the king of kings and ask for a, a mercy that he knew he was completely undeserving of. He knew he was deserving of death for what he'd done, and yet still to hear those words from God, you shall not die, which were the very words that he could then say to Shimei, you shall not die. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never known what that feels like to truly be forgiven like this. Maybe you've never known the life-transforming power of the king over all things, who didn't wait for you to be worthy of his forgiveness or even to seek it, but who left all the glories of heaven, all the riches of heaven, and who sacrificed his power and position on a level we could never even fathom. The God of all universe humbling himself, becoming nothing, as Paul says in Philippians 2 also that he could offer you a forgiveness that none of us could ever hope to earn. If you read on in Psalm 51, David says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise, which means that receiving this forgiveness is not at all about earning but only about humbling yourself enough to acknowledge your need of it. And as John says so plainly in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our guilt and need before God, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the God of this Bible, not a God of judgment and pounding. He's a God who offers Gracious forgiveness to all rebels who come to him confessing their need of his forgiveness. Every time he offers it. Or maybe you're here and you have received that forgiveness. Jesus surrendered everything in order to earn for you, but you've lost your way. You've fallen down like David did here, and now you just feel completely unworthy. Like, I can't, I can't go back again to him. I can't ask now for mercy again after he's already given it to me. If that's where you're at this morning, I wonder if maybe uh, where David goes on to say in verses 10 through 13 in this same psalm, if this couldn't be your prayer today as you surrender once again to the, uh, our king's ever-welcome embrace of rebels, David prays, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. 
you've been in the church for any length of time, or maybe even if you haven't, you are likely familiar with the story of the prodigal son who deeply offended his father and his entire family by taking the inheritance, taking off and squandering it in all kinds of debauchery and stupidity. And when he came to nothing and finally realized and acknowledged his guilt, acknowledged his need before his father, he decided, I'm going to go home. And he had prepared this whole speech that he wanted to give to his father and say, I've sinned, I know I've sinned. But the text tells us that while he was still a long ways off, while he was still a long ways off, before he even had time to get there and, and offer his sacrifice, offer his words of, I know I'm wrong, I know I've... It says the father saw him and had compassion on him. He ran to him, submitted his power and position in order to embrace his son, welcome him in with no payment, no cost, He surrendered power in order to receive his son back to full status as a son. In Colossians 2, Paul says these words, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ before you'd ever paid a cent. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Do you see it now? We always have access to return. We always have access to humble ourselves and come back. The forgiveness, however costly, to submit ourselves to say, I know I was wrong, I've I've failed you again. However costly that feels, it is absolutely worth paying. For in humbling ourselves before Jesus, our returning King, acknowledging the reality of our rebellion and our sin against Him, we find surprisingly in Him that the cost has already been paid. And all that's left now and all that remains is grace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray right now.